Ladies and gentlemen, my name is, is Richard Ovenden and I am uh, Bodley's librarian and I have the privilege, among many others, of chairing the electors to the Lyle readership. And it is therefore my double pleasure to welcome you here to the Bodleian's new Western Library this evening for the 2014-15 Lyle Lectures. Before I go any further, I would like to invite you all to join the electors, the reader and I for an adult beverage in Divinity School um, after the lecture. Uh, if you do not know the way, just follow the thirsty bibliographers making the arduous journey south across Broad Street. Before we move on to the, specif the specifics of this evening's lecture, allow me to explain a little of the background and the history to them. James P.R. Lyle was a lawyer and book collector who lived in Oxford and on his retirement in Abingdon. He not only collected books in a serious way, but also studied them closely, publishing his research on early book illustration in Spain in 1925. Over 100 of his best medieval manuscripts were bequeathed to the Bodleian on his death in 1948, and the library subsequently purchased another 60 manuscripts and many early printed books from his executors. Tilly de la Mer, then on the staff of the Bodleian, published a scholarly catalogue of the medieval manuscripts then in Bodley in 1971. In addition to this great generosity to the Bodleian, J.P.R. Lyle also left a bequest to establish a series of lectures in bibliography to be delivered by invitation by leading scholars working in the field. To this end, the university established a board of electors to review the state of scholarship and to invite the leading proponents to hold the readership. It is this body that has invited the current reader to deliver these lectures. The Lyle Lectures have more than fulfilled the expectations of their benefactor. The Lectures have made a substantial contribution to the field of bibliography in its broadest interpretation. A high proportion of the Lectures have been published, and many of these have become heavily cited works of scholarship, and not a few are known internationally as groundbreaking works in their field. The Lyle Lectures were first delivered in 1952-3 by Neil Kerr, reader in bibliography in the University of Oxford, and published by OUP in 1960 as English manuscripts in the century after the Norman Conquest. Since then, many distinguished readers have delivered lectures which have produced scholarship of enduring quality. Walter Gregg in 1954-5 published his as Some Aspects and Problems of London Publishing between 1550 and 1650. Fredson Bowers soon after gave his in 1958-9, published as Bibliography and Textual Criticism. David Foxon was the reader in 1975-6 and delivered the lectures which were eventually published in 1991 as Pope and the Early 18th Century Book Trade. In 1978-9, the reader was Howard Nixon, who delivered lectures as English Decorated Book Bindings, which OUP published in 1992. Jonathan Alexander published Medieval Illuminators, and their methods of work in 1993 from his Lyles of a decade earlier. And most recently, Henry Woodhausen in 2013-14 gave us a stunning series of lectures last year. Our reader this year more than lives up to the standards of eminence set by the best of his predecessors. Only a few of them indeed have made such a major contribution to their field. Reverend Professor Michael Suarez, SJ, is director of the Rare Book School at the University of Virginia, university professor, 
Professor of English there, as well as Honorary Curator of Special Collections in the University Library. Professor Suarez took his BA at Bucknell and followed it with another from Oxford in English Language and Literature. He took degrees in theology at Western Jesuit School in Cambridge, Massachusetts, before returning to Oxford to take his DPhil in 1999. He held the Kavanaugh Chair in English at Fordham University, jointly with a lectureship in the English faculty at Oxford and being fellow and tutor in English at Campion Hall. I would exhaust all the time allotted for the first lecture if I were to read the list of his publications, so I will confine myself to the most significant. He is co-editor with James McClaverty and Marcus Walsh of the collected works of Alexander Pope, OUP. He was co-editor with the Lyle Reader of last year, Henry Woodhausen, of the Oxford Companion to the Book and of its precocious offspring, the book A Global History. He was co-editor with Bodley's own beloved Michael Turner of the Cambridge History of the Book in Britain, Volume 5, 1695 to 1830. He's co-editor with Leslie Higgins of the collected works of Gerald Manley Hopkins and has also co-edited Volume 7 in that series, The Dublin Notebook. He is editor-in-chief of Oxford Scholarly Editions Online. In addition, I've counted over 40 significant book chapters and journal articles authored by Professor Suarez. I'm going to have to take the same approach to enumerating his many honours and distinctions. I highlight his Marshall Scholarship to Oxford in 1984-7, his Blue in 1986 for lacrosse. In 1987, he won the Newdigate Prize and the Chancellor's Essay Prize. He won the Committee of Vice-Chancellors of the UK's Overseas Research Award, 1994-7, and has held research fellowships at Harvard, Yale, the Folger, NEH, the American Council of Learned Societies, you, you get the picture. He was awarded the American Printing Historical Association's Annual Award in 2012, and the Fredson Bowers Award of the Bibliographical Society of America in 2014. None of these awards quite match, I'm sure, the frisson he must have felt in being awarded American Legion National Eagle Scout of the Year in 1978. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, I have very great pleasure indeed of inviting Professor Michael Suarez to deliver the 2014-15 Lyle Lectures, The Reach of Bibliography, Looking Beyond Letterpress in 18th Century Texts. Richard, I'm honored to be here. I was um, sitting on the steps of the New Weston Library as one does having my lunch on Saturday, um, having taken a break from the rare book room, and this group of tourists was walking down the street, and, and they looked rather confused. And finally, one of them in the group stopped and took in the fact that the Radcliffe camera was there in the distance and that the new Weston Library was right here and that the theater, the Sheldonian, was there. And he turned to his companions and said, oh, this is the university. <laughs> I'd like to begin with a book that might be somewhat atypical for me and for many of you. This book was purchased in 1604 by Thomas Bodley. Uh, Bodley knew nothing about Chinese books, 
This was the four books of Confucianism, a fragment of it, beginning with book three of the Analects. I'm reliably informed. And um, Bodley bought this book even though there was no person in Oxford who was capable of reading it. It was not cataloged for nearly 60 years. Thomas Bodley showed his wisdom and his ignorance concomitantly by inscribing the book here, given by Henry Percy, the Duke of Northumberland. He bought it with some a benefaction of 100 pounds, part of the money. He wrote the book, wrote the inscription, upside down on the back end paper <laughs> because he did not understand the structure of an Asian book. Thomas Bodley made a wager. He wasn't sure how it would come out. He didn't really know exactly what it would mean. He could not have foretold that the Bodleian Library would now boast one of the greatest collections of Chinese books in the world. He did not know that this would be the seed. So too, J.R. Lyle made a wager, made a wager on the futurity of learning. He made a good bet because he made a bet in a great university. And I am deeply honored to be part of that wager of Mr. Lyle. Think we need to ask ourselves, what is the remit of bibliographical inquiry? What are we really trying to do as bibliographers? And it seems to me that for a long time, bibliography has been preoccupied with the business of textual criticism, a very important business, a salutary occupation. But bibliography is for more than textual criticism. The driving question of bibliographical inquiry should not be what is the perfect text of Shakespeare, but rather how did this book come to be the way it is? And that question is much more capacious than the question what's the authoritative text of this book? It puts bibliography much more in conversation with the rest of humanistic inquiry. It's a question that we have to ask by attending carefully to the physical object, certainly. But more than just by looking at 100 copies of the same physical object. I think that the future of bibliography lies in a hybrid vigor in a marriage to book history. I think that the future of bibliography depends upon it being in dialogue, creative and productive conversation with the rest of the object-oriented disciplines. Art history, archaeology, museum studies. It seems to me that bibliography has for a long time pretended that it was different than the rest of humanistic inquiry. It seems to me that bibliography has for a long time, with its language of science, with its language of a calculus of variance and so on, 
suggested that it was different from the rest of the humanities. I would suggest to you, rather, that what's powerful about bibliography as a method is that it's exactly part of historical humanistic inquiry. The glory of bibliographical inquiry, as Don McKenzie said, is to reveal the human presences in every recorded text. This is a far more capacious and engaging remit than the business of textual scholarship, necessary and important and prized as that is. Accordingly, accordingly my lectures for as the Lyle Reader in Bibliography are about books that are somehow resistant to bibliographical method. Books that don't fit the rules. Books that somehow require us not to come at them with a set of uh, protocols that we impose upon the historical object, but rather in order to understand the object in history as instantiated by a set of cultural practices and in relation with antecedent objects, that we must engage with these books on their terms and much less on ours. So in my second lecture, a book on the fishes of the Indian Ocean, people bought it because of the color. It cost so much because of the color. It was took so long to produce because of the color, but we prescind from color production in bibliography. And yet, in the wake of Newton's optics, 1704, surely color is part of a way of knowing the natural world. So just because color is a fugitive category, just because it's difficult, just because it does not admit of a kind of apodictic certainty, does not mean that we can prescind from it. The book will teach us what we need to learn. It is a fundamental premise, therefore, of these lectures that objects make their meanings in relationship to other objects. And that we should do bibliographical inquiry in the most broad way possible, not just by looking at a hundred copies of one book, and certainly we must do that, but by looking at a hundred copies of other books, by building constellations of objects, by understanding how a book came to be the way it is, by going back into the thought world of the producers and consumers of those books. In this way, we understand every book as inflected by what has come before and as influencing what comes after. Today, the subject of my lectures is Pine's Horace, two volumes of the works of Horace 1733 and 1737, this book is, yes, fully engraved. There is no letterpress. 
This book spent no time on the bed of a common press. There is no composing room. This is a fully engraved book, and a beautiful one at that. A virtuoso performance by John Pine, the finest engraver in England in the first half of the 18th century, surely. You can see here the plate mark across the bottom, and you can see this gorgeous mise-en-page, the, the remarkable letter forms, all of it of Pine's own making. Remarkable. How are we to understand this book? Partly by thinking about what other people have known about this. Condorici understands how much it's, it's sought. Uh, nobody less than Updike is, is massively impressed with the letter forms. Edwin Wolfe, likewise, a tour de force of English bookmaking. Gordon Ray, his complete command of his craft. A most superb work, brilliantly executed. So the reception of Pine has been dithyrambic. And yet, we don't know very much about it. We know that its subscription list is a kind of a who's who. Look at the royal household here, the Prince of Wales, the Duke of Cumberland, the Prince of Orange, and 560 subscribers in the first volume, an additional 400 in the second volume, 170 English noblemen subscribed to this book. Remarkable, remarkable. Here we see subscribers from the University of Oxford, Vienna, Paris, Leipzig, Amsterdam, Geneva. The reach of this book as a pan-European phenomenon is virtually unprecedented. Oh, the king of France, the king of Portugal, 12 princes of Europe are on the subscription list. This is a book that matters. This is a book that we need to engage with and think about the ways that it makes its meanings, even though it doesn't fit the rule book. We need to have the humility to take this book as an object in history on its own terms and not on the rules that we have set in advance. In the second volume, 1737, an additional 360 some odd subscribers came on board. You'll notice the King of England, the Holy Roman Emperor and, dare I say, Mrs. Holy Roman Emperor, <laughs> The penultimate Holy Roman Emperor, in fact, the King of France, the King of Spain, the King of Portugal, the Duke of Tuscany, the Prince of Wales. Uh, my favorite, of course, the Prince and Princess of Asturias, where my family comes from, right? So we know almost nothing about this book, and there is no scholarly study of this book. None. Why? Because with the new bibliography, we must resist plates. 
plates are the siren song that we should not go near because we cannot do a kind of calculus of variance. We cannot do a kind of uh, a lockdown uh, knowing. But since 1969 and the publication of Printers of the Mind, isn't it the case that we can't know really exactly what's happening in the printing office anyway? Throughout the course of these lectures, I would like to reflect on evidence and inference and argument and omission. Evidence, inference, argument and omission. I would like again and again for me to ask and for you to ask yourselves the question, now that we know this, what exactly is it that we know? That's an important question, I think. So the book is printed on a rolling press. Here's one from, from France in the 1640s. Here's one from the 18th century that I prefer. Good old Rowlandson. And we can, we can study this book as a bibliographical object. We can say it's imposed as a folio in twos, but it's imposed as a folio in twos on quarter sheets. We can study and measure very carefully those sheets, and we can know that all the paper cutting was done antecedent to the printing, because even after the binder has trimmed the pages, some pages are still just that micro bit shorter. So we know how they proceeded in the office. We know about what, what's done. We can look at the structure. We can look at the signatures. If we study the book very closely, we can know that the book was usually printed with the outer form being printed first, but sometimes the inner form was printed first. And since the book was printed from plates on a rolling press, it was almost certainly done in batches anyway. We can apply all those methods of traditional new bibliography to this book. But once we've learned all those things, are you compelled in any way? I'm not. So what's the one thing we all know? I looked at about 200 booksellers catalog entries for Pines Horace to see what I could learn from the trade. Trade usually knows a lot more than the academy. And this is what we all know about Pines Horace, that originally, Pine had made a mistake in this coin of Caesar Augustus, and he had written potest, and uh, postest, and he changed it to postest. And as Richard Curl said, you know, people love points, and they glom onto points. That's a technical bibliographical term. They glom onto points because they're there. Okay, that's fine. We know that there are two issues, as it were. They're not really issues, that the, these copies are antecedent to those copies. That's OK. But then look what Dibden says very early in the game, the genuine edition, <laughs> as opposed to the spurious edition. The emphasis is in the original. Genuine? Spurious? Do you see how this is bibliography all about points? 
Do you see how this is bibliography about a kind of pseudo-textual criticism, you know? So here's part of the appeal of this. But now that we know that, what do we know? We know that some copies are antecedent to others. Hmm, but is this a distinction without a difference in most cases? Huh, well, when we look at disbound copies, it's very hard to read the watermarks generally, but if we looked at disbound copies, we can see that it's the Strasbourg bend is the watermark on the paper. And if we artificially reassemble the watermarks here, we see it's a classic paper, Strasbourg bend with Lily, and we can know that. And now are you happy? Now are you excited about the book? Now do you think you know how the book makes its meanings? Do you now understand the book much better as a cultural object? I mean, I want to know these things. Indeed, I spent a lot of time finding them out. But have I exhausted the plentitude of meaning that this cultural object is making by knowing these things? And if I'm very tricky and I, I look at the disbound copy and I see that Ah, in every page, there is this very thin line hidden once the page is folded, a guideline, because Pine was planning ahead. Good, I know he's a great craftsman. Uh, terrific. But where does that get me? It's useful to know. But where does that get me? I might deepen my inquiry further by recalling that Pine says the text is the 1701 edition of Horace, originally out of Cambridge, and it's corrected. It's the second edition. That's fine, and I can look at that. It's not a particularly distinguished text. I could go a little further. We could remember that that 1701 text is based on the 1799 text by Tonson, and that this text was extremely important as a cultural artifact, the inauguration of a new publishing project for Tonson, uh, a publishing project to publish the classics in quarto, dedicated somewhat poignantly to Princess Anne's son, who would die at the age of 11 who many had hoped would ensure the Protestant succession. A beautiful book, a book for cultural elites with fantastic mise en page. Is that not what's being evoked in this product that Pine has made for cultural elites? We can look at the pattern of advertisements in newspapers, and we can see how Pine <coughs> himself marketed the book. Okay, interesting, I guess. If we're very fortunate, we might even find Pine's own copy of the prospectus. And looking at Pine's own copy of the prospectus, we can learn quite a bit. You see here he writes across the top, the king of Portugal. I got him. Right? Right? But, but what's happening here? We can see that there are 272 printed names. Printed is not engraved. This part of the prospectus is not engraved. And 172 names additionally added in manuscript, including Alexander Pope's. And we can follow, in some ways, the progress of the subscription. And we can see. We can see the way that this object was doubtless used 
in order to marshal cu cultural capital, in order to garner fiscal capital by getting more subscriptions by the list. And we can see the, the way that he added more and more uh, distant locations. If we're very fortunate, we might even discover some manuscript correspondence of John Pine, not known hitherto to exist. And we might be able to understand something of his arrangements with foreign booksellers. In this particular case, a particularly significant bookseller, because this firm here, Weston and Smith here, were the booksellers of Benjamin Picard, of Bernard Picard, and Picard was uh, the master, most likely, of Pine himself. So there's a long-term professional relationship. Hmm, okay, so there's a continental thing for Amsterdam, a, a link. If we're really lucky, if we're very lucky, one day we might be looking at about the 130th set, because a method of bibliography that's authentic never, never has reduced rigor, but always must be as rigorous as textual criticism itself. And so if you're looking at multiple copies of an invariant book, you might find variation that you didn't know existed. For here, ladies and gentlemen, is the only known copy in the world of the book as issued in the original boards. Hmm. And we see the first version issued, the first volume in decorated paper, almost certainly from the Low Countries, and the second in more plain English. We can see that the book is completely untrimmed. These volumes were backed sometime before April 1939 um, for the Bernard Quaritch firm. They were originally unbacked. Nobody has known about these books because they were hiding. They were hiding in 19th century French Morocco cigarette cases. And so they were looking like every other deluxe Horace because the owner had made them you know, look more posh than they were. If we wanted to, we could study something of Pines Horace as a cultural object by looking at its reception history and its provenance history, by looking at the many gorgeous bindings that this book is in. I restrict myself here, and I, I, I won't dilate upon them, to the Dublin bindings, just some of them. You see, here's a Trinity College prize binding. These are all Dublin bindings. Two very different prize bindings from Trinity, a third. What do these bindings tell us about the book as a cultural object? And is this not part of how the book came to be the way it is? Hmm. This is my favorite. This is, this is a, a Mackenzie Dublin binding from sometime between the, six, the 1770s and 1780s. This is the Broxbourne uh, bequest. And this is the, the pine and the Broxbourne bequest. Um, a gorgeous, gorgeous book. So what would happen if we studied the, the history of pine uh, with its bindings as a kind of index of reception, and what would that mean? Or if we wanted to get more technical still, we could look at the history of the, the book's plateware, and we could take two fairly extreme examples. A fairly new copy here um, in the Houghton Library, and a very, very, very late copy 
where someone has not retouched the plates as they should have. And we can say, aha, that's rather interesting because you can really see the plate breaking down here. And that's not what we would expect of this book. So that's useful too, certainly. We could also study something about Pine himself. Here he is depicted after the manner of Rembrandt by his dear friend, William Hogarth. Part of the joke is that Pine's shop was at Rembrandt's head. But Pine and Hogarth, as you know, were responsible for the 1737 Engravers Act, a kind of intellectual property protection for engravings. And um, it's, it is the case that um, Hogarth liked to tease Pine. This is, as many of you will recognize, this is Hogarth's, a uh, detail from Hogarth's painting, The Gate of Calais, or Oh, the Roast Beef of England. And here is a caricature of John Pine, called Forever Afterwards from 1748, much to his detestation, Friar Pine. Pine was a Freemason and was rabidly anti-Catholic. So by depicting him as a friar, his best friend was playing um, quite a good joke on him. Pine himself gives us, in the Horace, a self-portrait. Here he is. See? Do you see? Pine gives us a self-portrait, and look what he does. He turns the press into an I, I, ego, I, here I am. And it's even more clever because impressio, he's in the word impressio. Quite a, quite a brilliant instance of virtuosity, it seems to me. Many people who understand Pine's life, like his ODNB biographer, say, ah, Pine had all these amazing connections because he was a Freemason and he did all the engraving for the London Freemason chapters and was, was a very clubbable chap and all the Freemasons knew him and liked him and that's the source of his social connection. And that's good and it's true. Like traditional bibliography, necessary, absolutely, but by no means sufficient for developing a full understanding. For in fact, if we look at Stukeley's here, great antiquary or important antiquary, we, we see that here in, in 1722, they went on a journey together, Stukeley, Vandergook, and, and, and Pine, and they instituted the order of the Roman knights together. Not in the ODNB, alas. And here, if we look at manuscripts in the Bodleian Library, as both of these are, we can see there he is among a great company, Pembroke, who would become one of his strongest allies, Winchelsea, Hartford, Clark, and so on, Gale. And there he is. I don't think we can understand the aristocratic nature of Pine's Horace and that subscription list unless we understand Pine as an antiquary himself and as one who aspired to be a virtuoso of a kind himself. It's also the case that if objects make their meanings in relation to other objects, we need, I think, 
to look carefully at what Pine himself published. Here, he was responsible for the official publication of the Institution of the Order of the Bath, instituted by King George I in 1725. And it's Pine who gets to be in charge of this project, this project near and dear to Walpole and the king. So there's the king right at the center of this title page and the dedication. And there's a very distinguished subscription list indeed. The high nobility of England, 1730. It is the case that immediately following the Knights of Bath, Pine begins to undertake two projects. One, he begins to move forward. Oh, you can see more, more people he's in contact with by doing the, the work. He begins to move forward with two projects. One, his facsimile production of Magna Carta, very opposite for our time now, a subscription uh, item costing half a guinea that again puts him in touch with the whole world of antiquaries in England. And his Horace. We can also begin to understand Pine's Horace by asking ourselves the question, what does it mean to publish Horace? And if we look at the Horaces in the free library, if we look at medieval Renaissance and early 18th century Horaces, we see that there are 609 different editions. So therefore, to publish a Horace was perforce to enter a highly competitive, deeply stratified market. One would have, methinks, to find a niche. So everyone will recognize this book. This is the Aldine Horace of 1501, the second book published in italic letter after the Virgil, right? Um, and, and you can see this is a revolution in bookmaking. Is it not the case? Is it not the case again and again that the publication of Horace entails a kind of a display of great innovation or virtuosity? in order to find a new place in the market. So Aldine takes those books with great big commentaries, and what does he do? He publishes a spare, portable, a Horace like a prayer book. My favorite edition of the 14 editions of Horace that the Aldine firm published is not the 1501. It's the 1506 second edition. For most of what we know about Aldous is from the little prefaces that he wrote. And in the 1506 one, he says, gosh, it's been a little rough for me lately. I, I was in Mantua having a good time. And, and I, I, I got arrested for disorderly conduct and thrown in jail for six days. But it wasn't me, Gov. <laughs> So, so here we see the Plantamoritis firm uh, publishing an export book out of Ostend. And this is the kind of thing that um, is a typical Horace in many ways, a large volume, almost a lectern book with extensive commentary, extensive critique. Here we see another way 
uh, John Bond here, fellow of New College, Oxford, writing who wrote the best school commentary, and, and how would the Hakiana make it uh, saleable? Well, they would find a way to make it accessible using Bond's erudition. And usually the Elsevier firm in Amsterdam would co-opt a Leipzig scholar and use Hanesius's name to publish a typical beautiful Elsevier tome. What does it mean to publish Horace? Surely Pine must have wondered that, and certainly Pine's consumers must have thought carefully about, oh, wait a minute, what's happening here? Huh, here's the Hakiana copy, and here's the Elsevier copy. Huh, anybody recognize anything? <laughs> oh, wait, wait, I'm sorry. These are engraved. They're not part of bibliographical description. <laughs> Let's move on. So what about the innumerable translations that serve a whole series of different purposes? Um, what about the fact that a Delphin Horace is being published in London as Pine is, is, is just getting his subscriptions together? Remarkable book. And of course, there's the Bentley Horace. Again, as a sign of virtuosity, as a way of displaying virtuosity. Looking at these constellations of objects, does this not help us understand something of what Pine may have been coming to do? If his question is, how did this book come to be the way it is, then don't we have to think about his Horace in relation to the universe of other Horaces that would have been known to his market? Not coincidentally, in the same year that he comes out with his Horace Beautiful, so does the, the, the royal printer in Paris, although with a very different aesthetic. We could also benefit, it seems to me, since Horace's, uh, Pine's Horace is fully engraved, by considering constellations of books that are fully engraved. And we see that they, they fall into a number of types. One is typographical books, and these are not aimed at the audience for Pine. Another kind are uh, fully engraved religious books. This very well-known Book of Common Prayer in, in two issues by John Sturt, also published uh, in the 1720s, The Orthodox Communicant. Here's a display of virtuosity, right? All this miniature engraving. Let's make the head of George out of the Lord's Prayer. Ridiculous. <laughs> but a subscription book fully engraved. We must countenance this. Another whole genre of books aimed at the very market that Pine's book is aimed at are architectural books, and they are legion, often ones influenced by the Palladian Revolution. Also collections. Here's Carrie Creed's um, uh, rather unusual set of engravings uh, of Lord Pembroke's sculptures. I find these primitive and powerful. Here, here is Lord Burlington, who, who Palladio Mad wanted to publish his, his drawings and, and acquired them and did so. 
and many books of other collections besides drawings or architectural uh, manuscripts uh, are published, particularly numismatic ones. We also probably ought to pay attention to Bernard Picard because of his own relationship, close relationship with Pine. And we see that as Pine is working on the Horus, Picard is working on an Ovid. An Ovid with 172 half-page engravings, not a fully engraved book, but 172 splendid half-page engravings. And this book is in production just at the same time that, that, that uh, Pine's book is. Published in Dutch, French, and English concomitantly. Hmm. All for the same market, for a market of cultural elites, of collectors, of would-be virtuosi. I think we truly cannot understand Pine's Horace if we don't understand Picard's Gemai. And now we begin to think about what are the sources of those 400 illustrations? Did Pine just make them up? Here is Picard, and here is the title page of volume one of Pine. Huh, remarkable. Here is Picard. Picard, Pine. What's going on? Oh, it seems to me there are many other books. Roman history. Aha, uh -huh. what's Pine doing? Pine is looking for sources in the libraries of English virtuosi. And he's taking those images from antiquity and he's using them to illuminate Horace in a way that has never been done before. And you can see he's quite accurate. He's scrupulous in what he does because he's publishing this book not merely for the text of Horace, which everybody has learned as a schoolboy, but rather because the illustrations say something about the nature of classical history. So in his very advertisement for the Horace, Pine says the ornaments will consist of heads of persons to whom they're inscribed or, or others that are germane. And so we see again and again, if you look hard enough, you can find them. Oh, look at this, the famous post est. And here it is. This may suggest, this slip may suggest that someone was dictating to Pine while he was making these. Hard to know. Um, if anybody would like to get me a present for Christmas, um, this, this, is, this is a book of uh, gem engravings uh, from Florence. It belongs, uh, the gem engravings in the cabinet of the Medicis. And um, this is a rather splendid book. I'm much indebted to Christchurch Library for most of this numismatic resources. 
Um, so Addison said there's a great affinity between the coins and the poetry. The medalist and the critic are near alike. Or as Professor Lonsdale will know, Pope summed up this sentiment by saying, the verse and sculpture bore an equal part and art reflected images into art. Hmm. So there's a kind of Addisonian aesthetic at work in, in what Pine's aesthetic project is one licensed by the cultural elites of his time. And he even adduces some of Addison's own sources. These are the sources for Pine's Horace. This is the Horace. These are the books from which it comes. Aren't you glad I didn't show you all the slides? <laughs> so, now, how are we to understand this book as a cultural object? Is it not a kind of anthology of the great cabinet books of Europe? Is it not a kind of set of extracts of flowers of some of the great libraries in England? Oh, it's not just the text of a schoolboy set of poems. It's something else. It has a different cultural resonance to those who recognize what's happening. Fortunately, uh, Levine has told us late in the 19th century that the metal designs are completely imaginary, so we don't have to worry about that. <laughs> um, but I think that we need to understand the history of virtuosi like Richard Mead, who was a great patron of Pine. And when, when Mead's uh, medals went on sale in 1755, they not only garnered nearly 11,000 pounds, uh, double what his library of 10,000 volumes acquired, um, but, but the, the catalog in octavo of just the medals took up 209 pages. Huh. And we know Pine is in relationship with Mead. So, um, we come back to Pine putting himself in the text, I, press, impressio, and what do we see? The Puti sporting in a library with numismatic books and sets of coins, pulling out the drawers, celebrating the plentitude of English collecting. This is the icon of the project. This is how we have to understand the book in cultural history. So Addison himself says a cabinet of metals is a body of history. We ought to look on metals as so many monuments consigned over to eternity. They are a kind of present that those who are actually in being make over to such as lie hidden the depths of futurity. And then he says, books are legacies that are presents to the posterity of those yet born. Publicare, to make public by coining an event, by publishing a book, by being homo faber, and crystallizing a moment in human history. Is this not how 
this book understands itself? We could say, ladies and gentlemen, that Pine was so deeply influenced by his uh, work on the Horace and by his own antiquarian work that he continues his medallic projects in the tapestries uh, on, on the Spanish Armada, 1739, a truly virtuoso performance, and in his much less well-known uh, 1755 Virgil, which is a very rare book and which Bodley doesn't have, but maybe you should think about getting. Um, this is a copy, I'm sorry to say and proud to say, from the New York Public Library. Um, but you see, it's the same thing. Hmm. So, so how are we to understand Pine's Horace? Surely after 1737, he continued to sell copies, surely having garnered such great cultural cachet. The book must have continued to sell. And so it did, for we have receipts in some of the books. Here you can see he is selling it for 1 and 16 as opposed to the two guineas in 1744. Well and good. He continues to make money from his investment. He is a businessman as well as a virtuoso. But it's also the case that we might be very fortunate and discover this manuscript. And when we do, we see received in October 1747 for an eighth share of the plates in my Horace, 16 pounds and five shillings. Pine sells seven shares in his own book to the elite booksellers of London for a considerable sum. The equivalent of the gross on about 63 sets, not the profit. Huh. Okay, he's trying to capitalize further. And if we're very fortunate we see that Pine, who dies in May of 1756, is Pine's widow is approached by those seven booksellers, and they give her 12 guineas for her share. And now they own the property. And now, what do they do? Well, this is what they do. Hitch, Rivington, Longman, Miller, Valiant, Dodsley, Harding. What do they do? They invest 63 pounds in reprinting Horace from the plates that they own outright now. Huh. 1757? Public Advertiser, a paper partly owned by Robert Dodsley. Here it is. This day is published. April 1757. Huh. Could it be that all these years, in all these bookseller catalogs, in all this dithyrambic praise for Pine's Horace, in all this obsession that we failed to note the most fundamental thing about the book, we know, 
we know that he published them in boards in a boss paper. A few remaining copies of the very elegant edition, they lie. <laughs> they lie because they don't want to say that they've made more. They want them to be original. They want everybody to know how fresh they are, how old they are, how reputable they are. Huh. And here we see in September of 58, Dodsley is still trying to flog those 22 copies that are part of his share. Why did these men do this? Well, for each seventh share at 22 volumes, they spent 27 quid. They made an investment because they had already spent the 16 pounds. And they put in more so that they could get their money back. And if you do the math, ladies and gentlemen, if Dodsley or any of the others had paid the advertising tax, they wouldn't have to pay for the advertisement because they partially own the newspapers. If they paid the advertising tax of two shillings an advert, four advertisements, and it's all even. They published a new pine in 1757, a hidden pine, a clandestine book, in order to recover what had been lost to them because they misjudged the market. Hmm. We have spent so much time and energy paying attention to post-est and potest. Every copy identifies. Every copy directs us to this moment in the book. And perhaps, just perhaps, it has kept us from seeing something more, from looking beyond, from being more visionary and more capacious in our outlook. Seems to me that the last word must go to the poet himself. Juvat immemorata ferentem, ingenuis oculisque legi manibusque teneri. That they may hold with gentle hands and read with kindly eyes. It is my joy to bring forth what has not been told before. Thank you.